Welcome to 1869, the Cornell University Press podcast. I'm Jonathan Hall. This episode, we speak with Dan Megan, Associate Professor of Psychology at the University of Guelph and author of the new book, America the Fair, Using Brain Science to Create a More Just Nation. We spoke to Dan about how he, a cognitive scientist, got interested in studying politics. What key issue can potentially unite conservatives and liberals in America? And what recommendations does he have, based on his research, for Democrats in the 2020 presidential election? Hi, Dan. Welcome to the podcast. Well, thanks for having me. Well, it's exciting to see your new book, America the Fair, Using Brain Science to Create a More Just Nation. You're a cognitive scientist by training. What inspired you to explore the world of politics? Uh, That's an easy one, actually, because there was an event that... uh, where that connection was made, um, I, you know, I, I, the cognitive science by training in, in politics, American politics has just always been a, a, a passion for me, but not professionally, but more personally. And uh, then I happened to uh, get my hands on a book a number of years ago by um, a cognitive scientist from UC Berkeley named George Lakoff. Uh, he originally published a book back in the 90s, I think, with the University of Chicago Press called Moral Politics in a sense, come out in various forms, including uh, a more, a shorter, more accessible version became quite popular um, called Don't Think of an Elephant. And, um, you know, when I read his books, and first of all, I, I thought he made a very, very powerful case that cognitive science did have something meaningful to say about politics. Um, and, uh, and it was, it, maybe not at the time when I first read his book, but certainly since then, it occurred to me that, hey, he did it, why can't I do it? In other words, why can't I, as a cognitive scientist, make a contribution to the political conversation as well? Nice, nice. Yeah, I remember when that book came out, or I, the, I remember when it made a splash again, the, the uh, shorter version, and there was a lot of hand-wringing uh, by the Democrats of, you know, what's going on? It was in the wake of, it came out right when John Kerry lost to George W. Bush in 2004. That's right. And that was, a, that was you know, very much like the 2016 election and that Democrats were left wondering, you know, they thought George W. Bush was a very beatable candidate and yet John, and John Kerry was a strong opponent um, and nevertheless they lost and it was a real moment of reckoning for the Democratic Party and Lakoff's book was there um, kind of trying to help them explain things. It, it actually was very much helped by the fact that Howard Dean, who very much like a Bernie Sanders type of candidate in 2016, challenged Kerry and other you know, potential nominees for the Democratic nomination. Um, and it was, a, it was the first time when the Democratic Party really started this, a potential leftward shift, which m- maybe is gonna see itself through in the, in the 2020 nomination race, we'll see. Yeah, it's, uh, there's, I'm doing hand rigging of my own, uh, with what's coming up, uh, this upcoming presidential election. Well, before we, we dive into that, I wanted to get a little bit into your research. Um, and your, your book points to the issue of unfairness as the key to unlocking the political stalemate that our country is currently in. What does your research point to as the way forward for the American middle class? Well, you know, fairness is a, is a loaded term. And, the, the, and this is where, you know, my book comes in because if you, we all have our sense of what fairness means. And what we don't realize is that other people have different definitions of fairness than we do. Um, in the book, I suggest that, you know, the people we generally call liberals and the people we generally call conservatives have two very different ideas of what fairness means. And 
um, the, the, you know, the book makes the point that liberals tend to uh, have a very poor understanding of what conservatives mean by fairness and liberals forward policies that inadvertently make many members of the middle class feel like they're being treated unfairly by those policies. Interesting. Um, so using the example, I think one of the biggest issues, uh, well, it's been an issue for decades, but the one that seems to rise to the very top um, survey after survey is the healthcare uh, system in the United States. How would you, um, if you were uh, an advisor to a politician who's running for, let's say, the presidential uh, election, the upcoming 2020 election, how would you ask the or recommend the candidate to position uh, their healthcare policy to make it seem fair or make it appear fair to both conservatives and liberals? Well, this is a, it's a very, very complicated issue. And it's, it's most, I don't think it's from, a, from a, I think a lot of people realize that a Medicare for all system, as some of the Democratic candidates um, are advocating, would, if you, if you could put the nation into a, you know, into a time machine and put them forward in the future in which there was a, a Medicare for all system, everybody would be quite happy with it. I mean, most people would be, there would be a lot more widespread happiness with it than the current healthcare system. Um, the problem, of course, is how do you get from, from A to B? And that's, it, it's very, very complicated because, for example, we have a, ma a massive part of our economy is the private health insurance companies. And as has already come out in recent weeks, that a proper single payer Medicare for all plan would effectively eliminate large chunks of that industry. Um, and, uh, and not to mention, the other complicating factor is, you know, of the millions of Americans who have health insurance plans through their through their work through their employers they are they claim to be happy with those plans and nervous about the prospects of giving up what they currently have in favor of what some democrats are proposing um, i have a unique experience being an american i was born and raised there but i live in canada and i have been for many years and we have a single payer healthcare system here which sounds a lot like i mean i think some of the medicare for all proposals by bernie sanders and the like sound quite a bit like we should do what Canada's doing. And, um, and I, you know, I, I, I would love to, to tell Americans who are nervous about that prospect, who, in other words, Americans, <clears throat> excuse me, who have, who have healthcare through their employers and are happy with it, I, I would love to, I, I wish I could prove to them that they'd be even happier with Medicare for all. And one thing that's really disappointed me, frankly, about the conversation among advocates of Medicare for All is that they aren't working hard enough, in my view, to try to convince those people. You know, they, they, if, you, if you hear them talk about Medicare for All, they use social justice language. And people, you know, Americans who already have health care, and it's not Medicaid, and it's not Medicare, but, you know, employer health insurance, come away from those, you know, come away with a message that this is only good for people who whose healthcare needs are not currently being met. Either they don't have health insurance or they have, you know, some, um, some weakened form of subsidized healthcare, Medicaid or, or whatnot. And um, I, think that's, I think that's untrue. And I think it's a, a real gap in the conversation right now about Medicare for all. Yeah, I mean, the, the healthcare debate in this country has been pretty dismal. I mean, even, even under the time uh, when Obamacare was being uh, debated, you know, the, the main thing you, uh, you heard in the media was death panels. That Bureaucr bureaucrats making decisions about whether we should continue treating a person or whatnot. Yeah. 
Exactly. And then when it comes to Medicare for all, um, a lot of the opponents point to Venezuela and we're going to end up with you know, these large lines and they don't seem to look north to Canada or look to Europe and see how effective these systems are. If I could put an optimistic spin on this, though, there was a time when single payer healthcare was being talked about in some circles in the United States where the comparison country was Canada, and, and the argument among conservatives was, you don't want a healthcare system, system like Canada's. I mean, they, they, when they need heart surgery, they have to wait two years to get that surgery and whatnot. So take it as a sign of optimism, or at least, you know, at least progress, whatever you want to say about it, um, that if Venezuela is the comparison country as opposed to Canada, that is a step forward, because that's a sign that conservatives are scared that when Americans look at the Canadian system, they like what they see. Interesting. I like that. I like that. Um, what other recommendations do you have for Democrats or progressives who are you know, running for president in the upcoming election? What, what would be some takeaways from your book that you'd like to, if you had their ear, what would you say to them? Well, another thing that has been pointed out, immigration is front and center right now. Donald Trump has forced it into the front and center of American politics, and it's been described almost as a trap that he has set for his potential Democratic opponents. Um, and I think that there's been some good advice being thrown around in political commentaries around the web and whatnot about how Democrats should approach, the, approach this issue. Trump's position is a very it lacks compassion. That would be a kind way to say it. And it's natural for Democrats to want to um, position themselves as the opposite of what Trump, you know, Trump's approach. In other words, be compassionate. On the other hand, and I don't, and I don't think there's anything wrong with it. I think Democrats have done a pretty good job on this issue. Um, but at the same time, if you overdo the the compassionate side of your argument, it's you could open yourself up to the accusation that you are for, say, for example, open borders or something like that. And I think that is, again, if you're if you are for open borders, then that's fine. You should say that you are for open borders. But I think to give people that impression is not exactly a winning electoral strategy. I think that you know Europeans are dealing with this, Australia and New Zealand are dealing with this. Um, and America is dealing with this. How do you manage people showing up at your border, seeking asylum and whatnot, fleeing bad situations in their own countries? Uh, can we accept them all? Um, is it good for America to accept them all? And I just think that Democrats have to be mindful of where Americans are on this issue. I think you can, there is a middle ground between Trump's position and uh, a, you know, completely compassionate, you know, we, um, we have to make room for, if there are people in the world who are suffering, America wants them. I think that is, a, that I, I, even though I would love that to be a winning position, I don't think that it is. And I think Democrats have to be careful about that. Good advice, good advice. One thing that, uh, getting back to equity and things being fair, um, you, I, I really like your take on uh, fairness, saying that fairness should be uh, selfishly enjoyed by everyone. Could you uh, expand on that thought? Sure. Um, so equity, I, I should define, we didn't really talk about it in detail earlier, just means that the conservative conception of fairness is that it's kind of what you you should get out of government what you put in. In other words, there should be a balance between your tax contributions and the services you get from government. And when they hear, for example, if you take something like Obamacare, which is basically um, some people 
um, who are doing well economically and have secured their own healthcare situation are being asked to subsidize with their tax dollars um, the healthcare expenses of those who cannot afford um, healthcare. Uh, and that rubs conservatives the wrong way. Um, they feel that they, they feel that America is a nation in which people should, if they work hard enough, should be able to maintain self-sufficiency. And I've worked very, very hard. I'm doing a good job of looking after myself and my own. And I have got a good job and I've secured health care for me and my family. And why can't other people do the same? So that if you're if you're coming up with policies that are going to avoid that criticism, avoid the criticism of being inequitable, avoid the criticism of um, you know, why are you asking me to continually subsidize those who aren't doing as well as me? For people who are, you know, who, for people who hold that view, and there are a lot of Americans who hold that view, um, I think there are opportunities in policy to satisfy both that sense of fairness and the more liberal sense of fairness, which is there are people who, um, who don't have their needs met and we have to look after those people. And I think there are win-win opportunities. I think Medicare for all is one of those things. Obamacare, again, even though I'm supportive of Obamacare and I'm very, very happy for those people who have health insurance now who did not have health insurance before the Obamacare legislation went through, um, I still think a Medicare for all system, as ambitious as it sounds, is something that could satisfy both the liberal and the conservative conception of fairness because... It is um, a single-payer healthcare system giving Medicare to all Americans from the day they're born or before um, until the day they die is something that we all benefit from. Um, everybody gets it. And once, once somebody enjoys something like Medicare for all, um, that is something that they can, they can like Medicare for all because it's good for them and their family. And they're not being asked to like it because it's good for someone else, even if it happens to be good for someone else, even if it happens to be progressively funded and some people are putting in less than others and taking more out of that system than others. Those types of, um, those types of unfairness complaints tend to go away when you know, when you have the security of knowing that no matter what happens to me and my family, I'm going to go to the hospital, I'm going to be, get the treatment that I need, and I'm not going to get a bill in the mail that is going to send me into bankruptcy. You explain it so clearly, and uh, I really appreciate all the insight, all the research you've done for the book, and uh, I encourage anyone who's listening uh, to, to get the book. It's, it's uh, fantastic. So, thank you. Uh, thank you so much, Dan, and uh, it was really a pleasure talking with you. Oh, thank you for having me. That was Dan Meegan, author of the new book, America the Fair, Using Brain Science to Create a More Just Nation. As a loyal listener to the podcast, we'd like to offer you a special 30% discount on Dan's new book. To receive your discount, please go to cornellpress.cornell.edu and use the promo code 09POD. Thank you for listening to 1869, the Cornell University Press Podcast. <laughs>